0: Starting Llamas Presents, Open Sci-Fi, Episode 9, Recorded on July twenty-six, two 2007. Hello and welcome to Open Sci-Fi, Episode 9. I'm sorry to report that once again, it's just me, and uh, no co-host, just gonna have to listen to boring old me. Anyway, let's plunge through the links, which I'm thinking I'll try to get in the show notes if I can figure out how to do it without killing the audio feed. Anyway, if I can't, here they are. We have the archive page. If you wish to download the episodes individually, it's at I'm excluding all the http// slashes because you probably know how to use the internet archive.org slash details slash open sci-fi actually that's www.archive.org slash details slash open sci-fi now if you like this podcast and wish to sign up for the rss feed it's at feeds.feedburner.com slash open sci-fi no www if for some random reason you want to be ghetto and use the old feed it is at tbol3 .wordpress.com/feed/. Now I don't recommend using this feed. It's not nearly as iTunes compatible and besides if you use this feed you don't get the cool little picture I made for the album art. Not to mention the feedburner feed is much more iTunes compatible. Next, if you wish to go to the forums and suggest something, it is at opensci org once again, there's no WWW in front of that. Hey, do you like this show? Well, I do anyway. So please go vote for us at Podcast Alley. Now, it's a big URL. I'm going to plunge through it. An easier way to do this would be to go to PodcastAlley.com Doesn't matter if you put a WWW in front of that or not. And do a search for Open Sci-Fi. You should find us. But... Here's the link, www.podcastalley.com slash podcast underscore details dot php question mark pod underscore id equals 49988. Now, don't blame me if this doesn't work. It might be out of date. Let me go check. Well, I just checked, and seems fine, but then again, by the time you hear this, it might have changed. Now, just to let you know, this is the uh, fourth time recording this podcast. The first three times, me and cirrhosis the co-host, tried to record it. My recording studio was busy, so we had to go to his place. And record on his iMac which had OS 9 on it. OS 9 only has Audacity 1.0.0 being the latest version for it. It's really ghetto with only three options play, stop, and record. Of course you could use the uh, little sound wave pictures to start in a certain place but you can't just press the Beginning or end button or whatnot. So, the first time we recorded this, we had recorded it, we had caused a slight thing, we had used the enveloping feature, easily undone with an undo. So, we press Command Z or whatever it is on the iMac, and poof! The whole program just sort of shut down. The second time we recorded it, we had recorded the whole thing, and realized that it just wasn't recording. After a few restarts, it started recording. The third time we recorded this, uh, well, he had to go, he had randomly decided to go swimming. And so, here I am, recording it, on my own. Alright, there's just some general stuff you might want to know. Cirrhosis doesn't really want there to be an audiobook in this podcast. I, uh, rather disagree, since it's the whole point I really started this podcast. However, maybe you just want to hear us banter. If so, I've been thinking of starting... Two new podcasts, one just for like, the audiobook, and one just for us talking. Now, why. Now, the podcast that we're just talking may make sense to you. I mean, if you're on a slow internet connection like Cirrhosis is, then why do you want to download the audiobook if you're not going to listen to it? But the audio podcast may be odd to some of you. It kind of makes sense when you think about it, because. If it was just one audiobook I'd be offering you, then I wouldn't do it, since there's well a subscribe to RSS feed on the LibriVox page. However, since I'll be doing multiple books, you can just sort of subscribe and get a book whenever I post it, without having to listen to me talk and talk and talk. Anyway, give me your feedback at openscifi.myfreeforum.org. Next, is that we want to change this to a Creative Commons share-alike attribute license. 3.0 license. As I said before, we can get so much good media I found on the internet, and unless you say something on the forum, this podcast will go to it. However, I can be easily dissuaded. Next. Please, please, get us on iTunes. I don't have an iTunes account, and I don't intend on getting one, mostly because I don't want to give them my credit card information. But for any of you listeners that do have an iTunes account, please submit this podcast. Next is that I've been thinking of a new section could be just like a podcast ad. Uh, Just one per show. It can be anywhere up to ten minutes. If it's longer than one minute, though, it'll go after the audiobook. If it's less than a minute, it will go right before the audiobook. This is just to get people to know about other podcasts and see if they find any that they like. If you want to submit one, go to the forum, open sci fi.myfreeforum.org. Now, the ad does have to fit into the license, and if you don't want to go into a Creative Commons Attribute license, that's okay. Just wait for the next season of Open What What is this? You don't know what a season is? Basically, it'll just be the next book. I'm planning on doing it in seasons, so someone who's just hopping into the show doesn't have to start from the very beginning, and you can just start at the beginning of the season, quote-unquote has nothing to do with the usual yearly production. Anyway, there's going to be a new segment. I haven't decided whether to put it at the beginning of the book or the end of the book. It'll, dev- it'll vary on how long it is. We'll get to that later in the show. This actual segment is music. We're going to bring, like, music awareness from various genres. Thanks to various websites and enjoy music. Um, once again, I'll try to keep the music out of vulgar language and whatnot. No swear words. Now, I highly recommend you get this feed from Amarok. This is for if you're using Linux. Now, why do I recommend you listen to this with Amarok? Now, what is Amarok, you ask? Amarok is basically the iTunes for Linux. So why do I recommend you get it with Amarok instead of just downloading it with Rhythmic or whatever your podcatcher is? Simple. Amarok has some very neat features. Number one, you can actually listen to this podcast without downloading it. This is a Big plus if you, like me, like to listen to a bunch of podcasts and find quite a bit of them to be not worth listening to. And you just listen to them anyway because you're bored. But anyway, that's not the point. You can listen to them and not download them. And even if you do decide to download them, you can easily delete them. Just click on the link, and not only is Amarok's listing of it gone, but the file is actually deleted. One thing iTunes has not yet been able to achieve, I've had many folders full of music files and whatnot that I've never, ever used. That just wasted my hard drive space, and I had to go in manually and delete it. Next, it synchronizes wonderfully with your MP3 player, assuming that it already synchronized with Linux, easily. Otherwise, you may have some work to do. And then, it'll automatically load files from the program on it. I mean, you can set it up so it will automatically load the podcast in the upload queue, which is pretty much the... when you click on the button, it'll load it onto your MP3 player. And so you have... It's really, really easy. I highly recommend it. Of course, when you're uploading it onto your MP3 player, you do have to download it. I mean, your MP3 player usually doesn't come with a built-in wireless internet connection. Now, one thing you may find difficult is fast-forwarding and rewinding in Amarok. It's easier than you think. There's a little... one of those... bars that you move the handle on, and as you move it back and forth, it should change the position in the file. If you notice that it's not doing that, then it's probably because you're streaming the file from the internet and it can't fast forward or rewind. Now, in Amrock, if you so choose to, you can also fast forward and rewind 30 seconds. You do this by pressing Windows Shift Plus or Minus. Yeah, I know it's kind of annoying having to use keys instead of having a button. But, hey, you've got the bar if you want to use a button. One thing I do caution you about Amarok is when you press the big X button, it actually doesn't close Amarok, it just sort of closes the window. But Amarok is still playing in the background. Kind of neat if you need to save desk space. To close it, you actually have to go to File, and quit. Now, if you forget this, don't worry. It should, by default, have a box that come up comes up and says, Warning, this doesn't really close Amarok. And now that I'm done bantering about Amarok, it, we come to the most important portion of today's show, actually. The next book for us to do. You can have a say in this by going to the forums, open sci fimyfreeforumorg dot org. I have come up with three recommendations. The first is The Cosmic Computer by H. Beam Piper. This is like sci-fi economics. This guy just coming back from college returns to his home, which is pretty much a junkyard planet which is actually the alternate title for this book, The Junkyard Planet, which was misspelled to be The Junkyard Plant, but that was just a typo. Now, this book is a lot like sci-fi economics. This guy has to save his planet, and there's a few really cool twists. Um, Actually, what he uses to save the planet is he convinces them that they're searching for Merlin, the supercomputer that, Saved the whole world from the war. It never really talks much about the war. It just says the war. My next recommendation My next recommendation: A Journey to the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Really good book. These two Danish guys pretty much go to the center of the earth and find some amazing things. That's pretty cool. Hey, it's Jules Verne, so if you can stand the language, I recommend it. The next book is A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. No, this is actually a sci-fi book. It's from the same guy that made Tarzan, actually. It's kind of like Tarzan on Mars, featuring John Carter, who's a lot actually like Captain Kirk he's magically poofed to mars and has to do all sorts of cool things in the midst of several martian races it's pretty actiony and uh well i'll talk about it on the forum uh next what do you recommend tell us at open sci-fi org Alright, there's just one last thing I do really need to tell you about this. I'm actually going to PodCamp. It's like a 12-hour seminar on podcasting. It is actually PodCamp City Online. You can go to it by going to the PodCamp website. I should have it in the show notes. Um, It's Saturday, the Saturday after this is released, so you Probably have already missed it, but I'll tell you how it is in the next show. And now, on to the news. The Linux Action Show, the podcast, has turned one year old. Blender, if you see the little picture in your photo album of the little spaceship in Open Sci Fi, I-, I made that in Blender. Blender's a 3D modeling app. Um, Anyway, the people that made Blender decided to make an open movie. They're planning on making another one. And this time they're also planning on making an open game with Blender. Uh, Version 2.45 is coming out, which is just going to be a bug fix. And what really excites me is, by the end of the year, Blender version 2.5 should be out. The Ubuntu forms gets 400 members a day. This next news item is really weird. Microsoft is actually adding ads right into their operating system. Okay, they have not yet, but they have the technology patented. So, you know, you can search for a file and get your files and some ads. They're also making their operating system Pretty much spyware. If you have any other news, submit it at the forums. Open sci-fi.myfreeform.org. The game for today is Super Tux Kart. This game is a lot like go kart racing games. You know Mario Kart, Crash Team Racing, and the sort. The only thing is, it's still in very early development even though it's been developing for almost a year now the physics engine isn't up to scratch it's a lot like the physics engine in the original Mario Kart but it is fairly fun to play there is a Windows build and a Linux build I'm not sure of a Mac build if you know of one posted on the forums, version 0.3 was recently released, and actually version 0.3 was a really big improvement over 0.2, which crashed a ton. So, we'll keep tabs on it and tell you when it gets to be better. And next week I'll tell you of a better racing card game, although it's only for Linux. Now, because the music segment for this show is nearly ten minutes long, I'll put it after the audiobook. Enjoy. The Green Odyssey.
1: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. The Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. Chapters twenty five and twenty six. Shortly after dawn, the yacht set sail and sped toward Estoria, a hundred miles west. The breeze was a strong thirty five miles an hour, precursor of the violent winds that roared across the Exurgimer during the rainy season. Green set every inch of sail he had and took over the helm himself. Steering was not as simple as it had been for traffic was getting heavy. In an hour he saw no less than forty rollers, ranging in size from small merchants, not much larger than his own craft, to tremendous three-decker rollers of the line from far-off Batrum, convoying even larger merchant vessels, high-pooped and richly decorated. Then, as they came to within fifty miles of their destination, small pleasure yachts appeared in increasing numbers— and by the time they saw the white, rocket-shaped towers that stretched from horizon to horizon, Green was sweating at the manner in which craft were shooting back and forth in front of him. Moran said, The entire nation is surrounded by these white towers, and by many fortresses interspersed between them. Inside the great circle of towers, the historians have many rich farms on the plains." The city proper, however, is built on three roaming islands that were captured by their magic many centuries ago." Green raised his eyebrows at this information. Indeed. And where is the vessel that brought the two demons down from the skies? Moran looked blankly at the earthman, though he knew well enough that he was keenly interested in the so-called demons. Oh, it is located close to the palace of the king himself, but not in the hills. It landed on the plane. Hmm. And the strangers will be burned during the festival of the Eye of the Sun? If they have lived, they will be. Green didn't like to think about their dying. If they had, then his problem was solved. He stayed on this planet and did the best he could here. There was one thing he had to admit. That was that having Amra as his wife made such an event not so calamitous as it might have been. She'd keep him so interested that time would pass swiftly, even on this barbarous place. In that case, he thought, why was he hesitating about taking her to Earth, if he got the chance? No matter where he was, she'd see that life was a whirlpool of action, and she'd only begun to disclose the deeps within her. Give her an education, and what a creature might evolve. "'What's the matter with you, Green?' he said to himself don't you know your own mind? Are you so capable at handling physical events, but a complete muck-up when it comes to psychical? Why? Look out!' cried Moran, and Green threw the helm hard a port to avoid crashing into a small freighter. The captain, standing on the foredeck behind his own helmsman, leaned over the rail and shook his fist at Green and cursed. Green cursed back, but after that he didn't allow himself to begin thinking about Amra until he had steered the roller into the brake. For the rest of the day he was busy getting cleared with the port authorities. Fortunately, he had a letter from the officer of the island fortress. It explained why he happened to be in possession of a foreign craft, and also recommended that Green be given a chance to sign up in the Astorian roller fleet, if he wished. Even so, he had to tell his story so many times to an admiring and amazingly credulous audience that it was dusk before he could get free. Outside the customs building, he found Grizz Quetter waiting for him. "'Where's your mother?' he asked. "'Oh, she knew you'd be tied up for a long time, so she went ahead and got a room at an inn. They're very hard to get during the festival, almost impossible.' "'But you know mother,' said Grizz Quetter, winking.' She gets what she's after every time. Yes, I'm afraid so. Well, where's this inn? It's clear across town, but it's within sight of the wall that's built around the demon's skyship. Wonderful! Rooms must be twice as difficult to get there as on the edge of town. How did Amra do it? She gave the innkeeper three times his asking price, which was high enough, and he found a pretext to quarrel with a man who had long ago reserved a room threw him out, and gave it to us. Ah? Uh, and where did she get this money? She sold a ruby to a jeweler who kept shop close to the break. He's sort of shady, I guess, and he didn't give mother what the ruby was worth. Now, where would she get a ruby, or any kind of jewel? Quetter grinned crookedly, but delightedly. Oh, I imagine that a certain fat, one-eyed merchant-captain, who shall remain nameless, Must have had one or two rubies within that bag he keeps inside his shirt. Yes, I can imagine. The question that alarms me is, how did she get it off Moran? He'd sooner lose a quart of blood than one of his precious jewels. And he'd notice it quicker than he would the blood. Grizz Quetter looked thoughtful. I really don't know. Mother didn't say. He brightened with a smile and said, But I'd like to know how she did it. Maybe she'll teach me some day. She seems to have a lot to teach both of us, said Green. He sighed. Well, I'm eternally indebted to her. No getting out of it. Let's call a rickshaw and see what kind of a place she has selected. Once both had settled in the high-backed chair of their vehicle, and the two men who pulled it had begun their slow trotting through the crowded streets, Green said, Have you any idea where Moran is? Some. He was detained by the port officers, too, because he had to explain what had happened to his roller. Then he called a rickshaw and left in a big hurry. He had an officer with him, not a naval officer, a soldier from the palace, one of the King's own." Green felt a sinking sensation. "'Already? Tell me, does he know where we are staying?' "'Oh, no. When I saw him coming out of the Customs' house, I hid behind a bale of cotton.' "'Mother had told me to stay out of his sight. She explained how treacherous he is, and how he hates you because he thinks you brought all his bad luck upon him.' "'That's only the half of it,' Green replied. He was silent for a while, thinking, his gaze roving idly over the crowds. There were many foreigners in town, sailors from every nation that had a border on the Exertimer, pilgrims who belonged to the far-flung cult of the fish-goddess, and had come here for the festival.' The majority, however, were historians, a fairly tall people, brown or red-haired, green or blue-eyed, with big noses, thick lips and a slight epicanthic fold. They spoke a guttural, polysyllabic, semi-analytic language. They wore broad-rimmed hats shaped like open umbrellas, tight-necked shirts with long string-ties, and pants that were skin-tight from crotch to knee, then ballooned out into many ruffles. Little bells tinkled on their ankles, and the women carried canes. All had a fish, a star, or a rocket-shaped tower tattooed on their cheeks. Along the narrow winding street were many little shops, flowering with a variety of articles. Green was intrigued by the magical charms being hawked everywhere. Many of these were little towers, replicas of the large ones that encircled the country. On Earth they could have passed for toy spaceships. He bought one. It was made of white painted wood and was about seven inches long. The big flaring fins and landing struts were well reproduced, but there weren't any of the fine details they could have found in such a toy on Earth. There were no holes in the stern or nose for the drive exhaust, or any indications of doors or detector apparatus. He gave it to Grizz and leaned back to do some more thinking. The charm hadn't disappointed him, because he had not expected any more from what he'd seen. If, in the beginning, those models had been furnished with every little detail, the passage of many thousands of years would have seemed blunted and reduced to their present state of fuzzy symbolic images. Time ate down to the skeleton of things. He wondered how the charm could have survived up to the present, because it surely must have been over twenty thousand years ago that the prototype, the real spaceship, disappeared, and man sank back to savagery again. Then why had this lasted here, whereas it had not done so on other planets, earth included? Abruptly he noticed that his rickshaw had stopped. A procession of priests, going to the palace of the king, where they will spend all night preaching to the demon, said one of the rickshaw boys. He yawned and stretched, I suppose that it will be a fine burning, since the priests have predicted that the sun will shine at high noon. They are safe doing that, as it has not failed to shine on festival day for a thousand years." Green leaned forward, his hands gripping the sides of his chair, and said, "'Demon? You met demons, didn't you? Weren't there two of them?' "'Oh, yes, there were. But one died two days ago. Hung himself, I heard though I can't swear to it, since the priests have released no details. The Holy Ones have been giving the demons a rough time. "'Demons,' said Grizz snorting with disbelief and disgust. "'Doesn't the very fact that one killed himself prove they're not fiends? Everyone knows that a demon can't kill himself.' "'Quite true, my small friend,' replied the taxi-man. "'The priests have admitted their error. They are truly sorry, so they say.' Then aren't they letting the other man loose? Oh, no, because he may still be a demon. To-morrow, at high noon, the prisoner goes under the sun's eye, and there meets the only death a demon may know. By fire he was born, by fire he shall perish. Chapter 20, verse 62 Or so I remember the high grouchning saying in his sermon yesterday, Myself I'm not much for reading, too busy making a living, running my legs off killing myself so my wife and kids may eat and have clothes on their backs. Green scarcely heard the garrulous rickshaw man, so shocked was he at the news. Had he been too late? What if the man who died was the pilot, and the other was unable to handle the ship? The rest of the ride he was sunk in such deep gloom he hardly saw any of the many sights that Quetter kept pointing out. But he did rouse when the boy said, "'Look, father, there's the king's palace.' on top of the hill. Behind that is the ship of the demon. You can't see it from here, but you will tomorrow when you go to the burning." "'Don't be so heartless,' said Green. But he looked carefully at the great marble structure that rambled all over the hill. Somewhere below that, probably filled with dirt, undoubtedly forgotten, was just such an entrance as he'd found on the island of the Cannibals. He'd also discovered a similar one upon the fortress of Shimdoog, the night before when he'd gone exploring and Moran had followed him. The palace, he thought, looked quite romantic and beautiful, enveloped in a dim red haze cast by the setting sun which lay directly behind it. Perhaps it would look different in the harsh glare of day, when the dirt and garbage would be so apparent. The area in which Amra had rented the room was one which had once belonged to the rich and the noble, but had decayed when the aristocracy moved their homes elsewhere. The inn before which the rickshaw boys stopped was a three-story pile of granite blocks. It had an enormous porch and six huge pillars in the image of the fish goddess. Green could not help admiring the building, even in its present state of decay, because he knew that it must have cost a fortune to build it. The granite would have had to be transported by roller across the since there would be no stone in this neighborhood. He imagined that the landlord charged high rents, and that Amra must have paid a pretty price indeed if she'd given him three times the usual amount. One thing you could say for her, when she traveled, she did it in style. The caryatids of the fish-goddess also interested him, and at another time he'd have examined them closely, by the light of the torches and the hands of the servants standing by them. The cult of the goddess indicated that the original historians must have migrated from the ocean side to the center of the vast and level plains, and here they must have built this imposing city, which was to become such a great focus of trade. Its central location made it a great clearinghouse for goods from every country bordering the Exodimer. He wondered whether it was pure accident that they had brought with them the charms and the shapes of spaceships. And if they'd also accidentally discovered that towers modeled after the charms would stop the roaming islands. Whatever the answer, it lay buried in the prehistoric. Hurry up, said Grizquetr, pulling on Green's hand. Mother has a surprise for you, but don't tell her I told you. That's nice, replied Green absently, his mind still upon the news of the Earthman's death. Hang it all, why must he always be kept in suspense? must always be improvising from moment to moment, always in the dark, never knowing what was coming next nor what he was going to have to do. Oh, for one day of peace and assurance! Father! What, what? said Green, startled out of his reverie and stopping halfway up the steps to the porch. Suddenly something black and small launched itself at him and landed on his shoulder. Lady Luck! Why are you shivering so? "'Better run, Dad,' said Grizz Quetter. "'There's Moran coming out of the door, and soldiers behind him.' He ended with a wail. "'Mother!' The sight of Amra, Inzax, and the children being marched out between the musket men was enough for Green. He turned away and spoke softly, but savagely. "'Keep your backs to them. Don't look back.' We're far enough away in the dark so they might not recognize us, especially in this crowd. A minute later he and the boy and the cat were looking around the corner of a large building. They saw the soldiers commandeer a rickshaw and put the prisoners in it. Then four of them walked behind the vehicle as it was pulled away. "'They—they'll be put in the Tower of the Grass-Cat,' said the boy, shaking with fury. "'Oh, that devil Moran! That fat old devil!' HE'S THE ONE WHO'S ACCUSED MOTHER OF WITCHCRAFT. I KNOW. I KNOW. HE DIDN'T ACCUSE HER, SAID GREEN. BUT ME. SHE'S GUILTY THROUGH ASSOCIATION WITH ME. WELL, AT LEAST WE'LL KNOW WHERE THEY ARE FOR A WHILE. THERE GO MORAN AND THE SOLDIERS BACK INTO THE HOTEL. WAITING FOR US, SAID GREEN. THEY'D HAVE A LONG WAIT. WELL, LET'S GO. FIRST THINGS FIRST. WE'LL BUY A TICKET, SEE THE SHIP. I HAVE TO KNOW WHERE IT'S LOCATED what type it is, etc. Luckily, I have enough money on me to do that. But we'll be broke then. You have any? Ten XR. Well, that's not much, but it's enough to pay for a rickshaw ride to the windbreak. At the box office, Green bought two tickets, then walked up the steep flight of steps with Grisquetter. At the top he found himself in a large group, standing on a platform beneath a wooden roof. This was for the curious who wanted to get a preview of the demon's vessel. Tomorrow the gates would be opened to admit a vast crowd who would sit on the hard wooden seats of the amphitheater that had been built fairly close to the ship. The ship itself was an earth naval vessel, a two-man scout. It pointed its needle nose upward, resting upon eight jet struts, gleaming in the moonlight. Its naval insignia, a green globe crossed with a rocket and olive branch, was a smudge in the shadows. Nevertheless, he could make it out. He felt his breast swell, and he choked with homesickness. "'Ah, so near yet so far,' he murmured. "'Even if I get to you, then what? What if the poor devil of a survivor turns out to be a navigator? Still, he ought to know enough to get her off the ground and into space.' and from there on, with interstellar drive, we ought to be able to get home, somehow. He sounded plaintive even to himself, for he knew how vast space was, and how complicated astromathematics was. And, of course, there was no guarantee that the Earthman would even be a navigator. He might just be an officer, or perhaps a civilian official, who was being ferried in on one of the swifter small ships." Then there was the awful possibility that the vessel might have landed here because there was something wrong with it, and that it could not rise again even if it had a full crew. In fact, that was the most logical explanation. He sighed and turned to the boy. This may be for nothing, but we can't just sit down and watch. Let's take off for the windbreak. What are we going to do there? asked Chris Quetter, as they walked down the steps. "'Well, we're not going back to the yacht,' Green answered. "'Soldiers'll be waiting there to arrest us.' "'No. We'll go to the other side of the break. Stealing another roller isn't going to get us in any more trouble than we're already in.' The boy's eyes widen. "'What are we doing that for?' "'We must return to the island fortress of shim "'What? Why? That's a hundred miles away!' "'Yes, I know. And we won't be able to make the speed going back that we did coming. We'll have to do quite a bit of tacking to sail against the wind, and that'll eat up our time. But there's nothing else to do.' "'If you say so, father, I believe you. But what is there on Shemdug?' "'Not on. In. Grizzquedder was a bright lad. He was silent for a minute, so silent Green could imagine he heard the wheels turning within his head.' then he said, "'There must be a cave on Shimdug, like the one on the Cannibal's Island. And you must have gone into it that night we stayed in the break. I remember waking up and hearing you and Mother saying something about your being gone and about Mirand following you.' Quetter paused, then said, "'If there is a cave entrance there, why haven't other people gone into it?' "'Because it has been declared taboo.' off-limits, by the priests of Astoria. It was done so long ago that I imagine that the priests themselves have forgotten why they forbade its access to men. But it's not hard to reconstruct the historical causes. Once, I suppose, the island was populated by cannibals. At the time the Astorians captured the island, they exterminated the Aborigines. They found the cave-mouth was a holy place for the savages— So, thinking that it held demons, and it does in a way, they built a wall around it and set up a statue of the fish-goddess, facing inward and holding in her hand a symbol to restrain the imprisoned fiends from breaking loose. That symbol, of course, is the same charm that is sold on the streets of Astoria, that circumscribes the country and the island of Shimdug. It is the same as the spaceship that landed near the king's palace." Green hailed a rickshaw and continued his account while they rode through the still-crowded streets. There was so much noise that he felt quite safe talking, provided that he kept his voice soft. By the time they had reached the northern end of the windbreak, Green had told the boy all he thought he should hear at that time. If, later on, his trip to Shimdug proved successful, he would enlighten him even more. For the present, he was concerned with the problem of getting transportation. Fortunately, they found almost at once a nice little yacht with speedy lines and a tall mast. The craft must have belonged to a wealthy man, for a watchman sat close to it before a little fire just outside his shed. Green walked up to him, and when the fellow rose, his hand suspiciously resting upon his spear, Green struck him on the jaw, then followed with a hard right to the pit of his stomach. Grizz completed the job by hitting him over the head with a length of pipe he'd picked up off the ground. Green emptied the handbag of the watchman and was pleased to see several coins of respectable denominations. "'Probably his life savings,' he said. "'I hate to rob him, but we have to have money. Grizz do you remember those slaves who were drinking and gambling outside the Striped Ape Inn? Run off to them and offer them six Duncan if they'll tow us out of the break.' Tell them we're paying them so much because it's so late at night, and also to keep their mouths shut. Grinning, the boy ran off. Green hauled the limp body of the unconscious watchman behind the hut, bound and gagged him, and threw a tarpaulin over him. Grisquetta returned, leading six noisy and reeling men, sturdily built, with legs and backs big-muscled from hauling rollers. At first Green thought he ought to try to make them keep quiet then decided that it would look more natural if he let them talk as loudly as they wished. There was a festive air over the city tonight, and more than one yacht was going out for a moonlight cruise. Once out on the plain, Green threw the promised money to the slaves and cried, "Have a good time!" To himself he muttered, "Because tomorrow may be your last day." Already he had a presentiment of what might happen if he succeeded in tonight's work there was no telling what forces he might be unloosing. As he'd said to the boy, there were demons imprisoned in the bowels of the island of Shimdoog Just before dawn, the yacht coasted to a stop outside the high stone walls of the north side of the island of Shemdug. Green had dropped the sail, and, judging his speed exactly, had steered the craft until its side was almost scraping the wall. As soon as the roller stopped, Green put Lady Luck in a bag tied to his belt, and cautioned her to keep quiet. Then he began climbing up the rungs nailed to the mast. The boy followed him, and both crawled out upon the spar. Green tied one end of a long rope around the end of the spar. Then he let himself down on it to the ground on the other side of the wall. After the boy had also descended, they paused for a moment, crouched, ready to run at the first sign they'd been seen. But— there was no outcry. The big moon, though dropping to the horizon, was bright enough for them to make good progress. Green led the way up a series of hills, heading in a circuitous fashion toward the highest. Twice he had to step and warn Grisqueter about the towers ahead, where sentries were stationed. Lady Luck seemed to know she should be silent. Her eyes glowed and her teeth flashed, but she was only making a soundless snarl. They saw the fires of the guards and heard their muttered voices, but none saw them. It was doubtful that the sentinels ever did look out, for they did not think that any man in his right senses would be roaming about in the darkness, where it was well known that ghosts and demons waited for foolish mortals. Just before they began climbing the slope of the peak that was their goal, Green whispered, "'This island was built much like the first one we encountered.' I think that all of these islands are more or less similar, all being composed of a base of a mile and a half square of Eternum metal, or something like Eternum, and all covered with rock and dirt and trees and vegetation and stocked with birds and beasts. I suppose that the original builders landscaped these craft for aesthetic reasons. After all, a sheet of metal with a few metal chambers on it doesn't look very pretty, and would make a blinding glare in the sunshine. "'Uh?' "'replied the boy, who didn't understand. "'Do you know, it's strange that I was right the first time "'when I sarcastically referred to the roaming islands "'as glorified lawnmowers. "'What?' "'Yes. In the beginning there must have been many more "'than there are now. "'Enough to keep the vast plains looking neat and well-kept, "'the grass clipped, the forests prevented from encroaching "'well-defined limits, and so on. "'But when there were no longer any maintenance men "'to keep them going, they stopped,' one by one, until at this present time there are perhaps a few hundred. Though I don't know, there may be more. Anyway, whenever one did run down or break down, for some reason or other, it was soon erased by a still-functioning island. Erased? Yes, for it's obvious to me that the islands not only cut grass, they kept the plains free of obstructions that weren't supposed to be there, and a dead island would constitute just such a hazard. Quetter spoke in a thin voice. "'Perhaps, father, I may yet understand you. I must be stupid.' "'Far from it. You'll learn in time. Anyway, I should have known what they really were when I heard the tales of the sailors. Remember that one about the big hole made by the meteorite? And how something mysterious filled it in and covered it with turf? And then there was the way that wrecked rollers would vanish down to the last nut and bolt and the skeletons of the dead aboard. And there was a legend of Sam Drew, the tailor-turned-sailor, and what he found in the metal chambers inside an island, the great white eye through which he saw what was outside the island, and the other paraphernalia. They weren't the property of a wicked magician, as the tale would have it. Any earthman would recognize T.V. and radar and dials and controls. Tell me more. I will when we get over this wall." Green had stopped before a barrier of stone, reaching at least forty feet high. A grim crown, it completely encircled the top of the hill. Once it must have been difficult to scale, but mortar has crumbled here and there, and vines grow all the way up. Follow me. I remember exactly the path I took. He jumped up on a little ledge, seized a thick vine, and hauled himself up to another minor projection unhesitatingly, the boy swarmed up after him. Panting, they reached the top, where they rested a moment and wiped the blood from their lacerated fingertips. The cat was the only one that seemed unperturbed. Silently, Green pointed out the twenty-foot-high statue of the fish-goddess below. Her back turned to them as she gestured at the cave-mouth with a rocket-shaped charm. For the first time, Grizz Quetter seemed scared. Like all his fellows, he had an unhealthy awe for the supernatural. This place, so walled off, so utterly ancient-looking, so invested with all the attributes of taboo, so invocative of the horrible tales of demons and angry gods, depressed him. Only his father's seeming indifference to any fiends they might encounter kept him from turning tail and backing down the wall. One thing I'll bet, and that is that Moran didn't follow me this far but stayed down on the ground— With that belly of his, he'd never have made it. He'd have tumbled off like a big fat bug and been squashed like one, too. Wouldn't that have been awful? However, he didn't have to go all the way with me. The very fact that I would dare to enter a taboo area is enough to condemn me. I should have slit his throat when Amra told me he'd been shadowing me. But I couldn't do it without absolutely convincing evidence. And even if I'd had that, I suppose I'm too civilized to kill him in cold blood." You should have told me how you felt," said Grizz Quetter. I would have slipped a dagger through the tallow over his ribs. No doubt, and so would your mother. Well, down we go. And he set the example by throwing his leg over the edge of the wall and letting himself down, somewhat gingerly. The descent was even worse than the ascent, but he didn't bother telling the boy that. By the time he found out, he'd be at the bottom. Even so, when he reached the ground, He thought that the lad couldn't be one whit more shaky than he. Forty feet was a long, long way when you're up on top looking down, especially in the moonlight. "'This is the second time I've done it, but I don't think I'd have the guts enough for a third time,' said Green. "'But we have to climb back out, don't we?' "'Oh, we'll have to go over it, but I hope it won't be so high by then,' said Green, looking mysterious. "'What do you mean?' Well, I hope these stones will all be tumbled to the ground. In fact, it's a necessity, if we're to do what I expect to do. He took the bewildered boy by the hand and led him past the cold and silent statue and into the cave's entrance. We could use a light, he said, but a torch would have been too awkward to carry up that wall. And we can grope our way to the rooms that are lighted. Wonder why the passageway wasn't lighted too, he thought or had this cave been added by the savages who used to live on the island, so that the sanctum sanctorum would have been approached through darkness? Perhaps it was, the primitives having constructed such a chamber so that the initiate into the religion could go through darkness both literal and symbolical and come into a light that also embraced both worlds. He didn't and couldn't know. He could only guess. "'But I can take advantage of what I do have on hand,' he said to himself, greeting his teeth with determination. The dust beneath his feet gave way to clean metal. They rounded a corner and found themselves in a chamber much like the one upon their first island, except that this had furniture. A skeleton lay in the middle of the floor, face down. The back of the skull exhibited a great hole. "'He may have been here for a thousand years or more,' said Green. "'I'd like to know his history, but I never will.' do you think the goddess killed him?" No, nor demons either. It was the hand of man that struck him down, my boy. If it's violent death you're trying to explain, don't drag in the supernatural. There's enough murder in the hearts of humankind to take care of every case." In the third room, Green said, There's no wall of dust to stop us. The Ionic charges haven't stopped working. Notice how clean everything is. Ah, here we are, before the door. Grizz Quetter looked puzzled. Door? I see only a blank wall. That's all I saw, too, said Green, and that is all I would have ever seen if it hadn't been for the tale of Sam Drew. Let me tell you how you got in, chattered the boy excitedly. I know what you were thinking of, what you did. You stood before the wall, and you made a sign like this on it. He traced a rough outline of a rocket against the cool white metal— and the wall suddenly slid to one side and you had an entrance see a whole section had moved noiselessly into the wall leaving a round doorway yes i remembered the story of sam drew and though it was ridiculous to think that it would work i did what the sailor did remember that the cannibals were after him and he ran into the cave and came to just a blank wall and he wishing to protect himself against the evil spirits that he was sure lived in the cave traced the sign that is supposed to prevent them from touching a man, and the door slid open, and he plunged on into the chambers of the wicked magician, the savages howling frustratingly after him. And, continued Green, I did just what he did, and the sign proved to be an open-o-sesame for me." A what? Never mind. The point is that the ancient maintenance men must have used just such a gesture to open the door, or else used it in conjunction with other means and if they did, then they must have also been repair technicians for the ships that landed here. Perhaps the sign of the rocket was a secret symbol for their guild. I don't know, but it sounds reasonable." Ignoring the boy's flood of questions, he walked into a great room. It was more bare than he'd expected when he had found it the first time. It contained four machines, or their fuel supplies, all concealed in four large square metal containers. In the center of the room was a chair and an instrument panel. The panel contained six TV windows, several oscilloscopes, and dials whose purpose he didn't know. But the controls attached to the arms of the chair seemed simple enough. The only trouble, he said, is that I don't know where the activating switch is. I tried to find it the other night, and I couldn't. But it must be so obvious that I'll feel like a fool when I do locate it. Vainly, he pulled at the little lever set in the arms. My failure to activate this was the main reason I returned to the yacht and sailed on to Astoria. Of course, I had to go and find out just what the situation was, and get a good idea of my plan of campaign. Perhaps if I'd stayed here and taken a chance on going into the city blind, we'd have been better off. At least your mother wouldn't now be in prison, and we wouldn't have the additional worry of rescuing her." He rose from the chair and began pacing back and forth. How ironic if I'd come this far and could get no farther. But then, what else could I expect? It's up to me to solve this, and I'm not infallible, omniscient. It should be functioning as of now. I know that the ring of rocket ships has got it paralyzed, so it can't act. Nevertheless, unless it's blown a fuse, gone neurotic from frustration or just worn out, there should be some indication that it is still in operation. "'What do you mean?' said Grisquetter. "'How can the island be paralyzed?' Green stopped pacing to gesture at the radarscopes. "'See those? Well, there should be some funny lines squiggling across it, or little dots moving, or arcs sweeping across it. They should be indicating the shapes of things in the immediate neighborhood outside the island, and the lay of the land.' Thus I imagine that in the ancient days, when it spotted a rocket ship, which would then have been a genuine spaceship and not a mock-up, it would have detoured around it. The whole island was, in one of its functions, a field attendant, a scavenger. It removed anything from the plane that wasn't supposed to be there. There's why they now attack rollers, and crush them, and disintegrate the parts that fall beneath their bases. That also explains why the island is trapped by a ring of rocket-shaped towers, The radar detects a complete circle, and, being unable to molest any object shaped like a rocket, it squats in one place until it runs down or the rocket shapes are removed. Of course, it worked automatically. But there were controls for a man to operate it when there was a special job to do, or if he had to take it to another place it ordinarily wouldn't go when on automatic. These controls must be the ones. The question is, does the island switch itself off and on at certain intervals, scanning the area around to see if the inhabiting objects have gone? If so, there's no telling how long we may have to wait before its next sweep, and we just can't afford to wait. He was in agony. As long as he could keep his body and brain in action, he felt he was progressing. But as soon as he had to wait upon some inanimate object he couldn't attack, or came across a seemingly unsolvable problem, he was lost." He just didn't have the patience. Lady Luck whined. She was tired of being imprisoned in the bag at Green's waist and felt that she had been a good girl long enough. Absently, he lifted her out and put her on the table. She stretched, yawned, licked her lips, and then patted across the table. Her tail switched back and forth, and its tip brushed the surface of the centrally located TV screen. Immediately, a metal ball on the panel glowed red and a sharp whistle sounded. Two seconds later, light sprang into being in all of the viewers. End of chapters 25 and 26
0: The music for today's show is Atlanta Symphony Second Movement Allegro by Macros Oliva. I obtained it from CC Mixer. I believe the CC stands for Creative Commons Mixer.org, CCMixer.org. Enjoy the music. TBO3. The music was found at http://www.archive.org/details/Details/Techno. details slash is released under Creative Commons Attribute 2.5 license. And the music you are now hearing, which is Maple Leaf Frag is from Utopia. http slash is in the public domain. The audiobook is from LibriVox. This is not a LibriVox recording. However, if you would like to listen. Or volunteer for LibriVox, please visit HTP colon This episode is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribute license. See you next week. The other two tracks not mentioned in the credits are Fly On by Dion. This was used in the background after Techno. The second was Altante Symphony Second Movement Allegro by Marcos Oliva or Marcos Olivia. They are both found on Creative Commons Mixer or CCMixer.org and they are both released under the Creative Commons 2.5 Attribute License. Wow, my computer just came up with a message saying you have no space left on the hard drive.